nations to go. We'll know when we get to England or something that we've got to the end or something. <laughs> All right. That's where, that's my roots, where my dad's from. Yeah. Well, this, look at the time there. There we go. We're going to switch gears into just a message this morning. Uh, but I want to play a little bit of a game with you this morning. Um, I was reading the Shoppers Drug Mart flyer, looking for things to buy for people for Christmas. And uh, there was a, uh, I got to the fragrance section. And uh, I haven't been in the fragrance section for a, long, a lot of years, looking what was there. And uh, I thought it was quite interesting. I found two uh, almost full-page ads for two different fragrances. And I read the descriptions of the fragrances, and it really caught my attention. So I thought I would read you the descriptions of two fragrances, and the game is for you to guess whether it's a guy's fragrance or a girl's fragrance. Okay? So I'm going to read these two fragrances for you. I'm going to read them both through, and then you can try to figure out. One is for guys, one is for girls. Try to figure it out. Okay? Here we go. Um, Here's the first description. This fragrance is a story of self-discovery found through confidence, strength, and kindness. That's the first one. Second fragrance. This fragrance is the expression of the person you are with all your nuances, a statement embracing all your facets and emotions. All right, I'm going to read them again, and we're going to vote. So I'll read the first one, and this is how we're going to vote. If you think it's a girl's fragrance, I'm going to get you to point this way. If you think it's a a boy's fragrance, I'll get you to point this way. Let me read it again, because you've had time to hear them both. Here's the first one again. Uh, This fragrance is a story of self-discovery found through confidence, strength, and kindness. Okay, predominantly... Guy votes. votes. Okay, Uh, next one. This fragrance is the expression of the person you are with all your nuances, a statement embracing all your facets and emotions. Wow, that one's pretty even, but a little more to the girl side. Well, I'm so delighted because you're wrong. (laughs) The first one was the girl fragrance, and the second one is guy fragrance. I know, it seems almost, that's what I thought. That's why I brought it up, right? You knew it, come on, you knew it would be, okay. Um, Ladies, how many of you have been in a relationship with a guy who used the words nuances and facets to describe himself? (laughs) I can hardly wait. The the next time Marnie asks me how I'm doing, I'm going to say, I'm so glad you asked. I, I, I just want to have a heart-to-heart with you about all my many facets and nuances. You know what? It, for me, it got even wilder because there was also the names of the fragrances. Now, you probably got the same flyer as I did, and if you didn't throw it out, you can go look this up. But the names of the fragrances, the, names, the name of the girl fragrance was Goddess. Goddess. And, uh, you, know, I, you, know, you know how some products sort of overpromise a little bit? 
talk about wildly overpromising. You know, buy this bottle, goddess. You'll become a goddess. Um, wow, that's quite a promise. The guy's fragrance is way more realistic. It's called myself. <laughs> when I read that, you know what I thought? I thought, I don't need that product. I already smell like myself. In fact, I think my wife would like it if I smelled a little bit better, not like myself. I mean, what do they put in a bottle of cologne to make you smell like yourself? Is it just water? So this is how I would market it if I was them. I would have called the product Wet Guy. And then this is how I would have described Wet Guy, the cologne. 100% pure H2O. No additives. Only one ingredient. Eight squirts of this, and you'll smell like a damp version of yourself. <laughs> okay, maybe that's why I'm not in marketing. Now, i got to stop, because obviously these are popular fragrances, and maybe you're, you're actually splashed a little bit of goddess or myself on yourself this morning. But I was just thinking about this. What if... The goddess, who's hoping to be worshipped, gets into a relationship with the guy who's really all about myself. I hope they don't get married. Now, why am I talking about this? I'm going to go right into the, into the scripture. And maybe you'll hear a bit of echo of goddess thinking and myself thinking in the scripture that I read. 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5 says this. But mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves. So we're not talking about just having good self-esteem or confidence. But we're talking about being truly sinfully self-centered. Making your world all about myself. It goes on. People will be lovers of themselves... Lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having an having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. A couple of comments off the top. When I was first reading this passage, I was like, yeah, okay, so this is what the unbelieving world is going to look like in the last days. You know, this is what it's going to be like. And then it gets to that line of saying, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And I thought, could this not just be a description of people who don't profess to believe in God or to follow Jesus, but it also could be maybe a description of those who do profess to follow Jesus. 
Because you can have a form of godliness, a form of following, maybe even a profession of faith, but is that power at work in your life? So maybe even when you come to first follow Jesus, you could tick through this list of traits and say, yeah, that's just, that's where I was living. I was loving myself, loving money. I unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control. You, just, you can go through the list. But when you begin to follow Jesus, when he makes you new, makes you his child, you begin to take on traits that resemble your heavenly father. In fact, he, he's all about um, doing a work in our lives so that, uh, our, that there's a transformation, especially in the love department. I mean, when I read this to you, did you, did you hear it? Lovers of themselves, lovers of money, without love, not lovers of the good, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Love gets mentioned six times in, that whole, in this whole list. So it really is about our affections. It really is about what we love. So terrible times are coming, it says, in the last days. And... Uh, at the heart of that terrible time, there's the issue of what we love. Now, contrast this with, with uh, 2 Timothy 4.8, which was the very first verse I started this series off with when we started talking about the second coming of Jesus. It says, Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness with this, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. In the, uh, that's the NIV, but in the ESV version, it, they translate those words as loved his appearing. Uh, so does the King James, New King James. So what does loving his appearing sound like? This is what we're talking about every week, loving his appearing. This is what my prayer has been for you and for me, is that we would love his appearing more and more, and that hopefully this series and even the scriptures we look at would help you and help me to have a greater love for the second coming of, of Jesus, for the promise that he gave us that he would come again. So what does it sound like? We had a great example. Uh, um, uh, Pastor Laura was, shared this with me, and I just thought it was amazing. So in the kids' ministry uh, area, they have a, a wall where they can stick Post-it notes on with prayers. I think it's like Dear God wall or something like that. And so they take little post-it notes, they take some time, think about it, and then they write, you know, a sentence or two, and then they, they stick it to the wall. Anyhow, so she was, at, after one day they were doing that, she went through there, and she, was, she found this one, and she took a picture of it. I want to share it with you this morning. Dear God, when I feel sad, I don't like it. I hope you can remake the world soon. That's a longing for his appearing. That's a love for his appearing in a very, like it's most essential form in the heart of a child. Romans, it talks about how the world is groaning and we are groaning and, and we're, we're, we're groaning for what he's promised. The renewal of all things. If you want to hear me talk more about that aspect, the renewal, the new heaven, the new earth, you can go back into the, the spring. I did a whole series on heaven, just talking about heaven. 
and the great promise that he will make all things new. So when you look at things in this world that, that are, were meant to be good but have been spoiled, or you can still see the good in them, but it could be so much better if it, didn't have, if it hadn't been infected or it hadn't been affected. We have this great hope that he's going to make all things new. He's going to renew the, there's going to be a new heaven, new earth. We're going to have new bodies. I talked the first week about like the heart of our hope for the second coming was the glory that is going to be revealed in that day. And you know what? He's going to make us, if you're a follower of Jesus, he's going to make us new so we can even receive that glory. So as I am right now, if I had the full glory of Jesus revealed on the day of the second coming, I have some limitations. I, the Bible says my heart is deceptively, uh, deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So there's some work in my heart that needs to happen. I've got some issues in my mind, some thoughts there that probably hinder myself from appreciating the glory of who Jesus is. And also, I have a physical body that's got some limitations, too. You know, he's going to work in all three, three of those areas in order that we can be the kind of glory receptors we're supposed to be. He's going to work in our bodies, new body, new heart, a, new, a renewed mind. He's going to work in all those areas. There's a verse that says um, that the righteous will shine like the sun in that day. Just look around. Just pick someone here. Just pick someone. Just look at somebody. I don't get really weird about it, but just look at somebody. Imagine them shining like the sun. Imagine them shining like the sun. I was at a, a funeral um, a number of, I don't know, about a month ago, and Dave Wicks was leading the funeral, and he had a really great comment. I, I don't know word for word what he said, but it was the, the comment was basically this. He says, sometimes we see a moment or two in the life of a person, and we get a glimpse of what their life would be like without the brokenness of sin. It's just a little bit of a taste of glory. Just a little bit of a taste of what's to come. I think about my own kids, like, you know, they experience me as their dad, the good and the bad. They're going, probably all going for therapy someday over <laughs> me being their dad. Maybe they are. Who knows? But you know what? If they see just even a glimpse of God's work in my life or something, and they say, well, that's not dad. That must be God because, you know, they can hope for the renewal of their dad. Incredible. Someday you're going to shine like the sun. Someday you're going to be renewed body, soul, and spirit. It's incredible. And so, so sometimes we pray like a prayer like this one, when I feel sad, I don't like it, I hope you can remake the world soon. And it's like we're groaning for something better. But it's more than just that. It's like the second coming of Jesus is so great that really the things we have in this life that are great don't compare. 
I was thinking about how, ex- how excited I am. I've got some time coming off just after Christmas. I'm excited about the family time that's going to be there. Um, just to be able to get a bit of a break from work, that's going to be great. And uh, I've got some great plans. I bought some great presents already. I'm looking forward to people unwrapping them. What if Jesus came today and I, none of those things happened? Would I be disappointed? No. Now, it's one thing to know empirically that I would not be disappointed. It's another thing to go, oh, actually, inside I actually do feel disappointed, right? I, I was really hoping to have that experience, right? And, and there's all sorts of things. You know, I was, I was hoping to be able to grow up, my, a kid might say, or a teenager might say, I was hoping to get married, or, uh, you know, I was hoping to have kids if you're married, or... Or for me, I, I have some of my peers, they have grandkids now. And I, I sort of, you know, the more I change diapers, the more I think, I want kids I can play with and then give back when they stink. <laughs> Maybe I just spray them with some myself to make them <laughs> give them back to mom and dad. So what if Jesus comes back before I get grandkids? Are we saying, come Lord Jesus, in the good times too? Or just when we groan? If he interrupted the best moment of your entire life, you would see that moment and go, oh, I just, it just upgraded exponentially. Do you love his appearing like that? I'm challenged by these things. Now, one of the challenges, I, I'll look at the time here, see what I can take on today, this morning. I don't want to try to take on too much. One of the challenges when you read something like terrible times are coming in the last day is I think when we think about the end times, some of us do get a little bit nervous because the Bible talks about suffering, right? Jesus said, in this world, you'll suffer. You'll go through things. And that's true of any life, but... It seems like the end times, there is an increase in this area. And, of course, when the Bible says it's going to be terrible times, you believe, okay, those have got to be a significantly terrible times. Right? So what do, we, what do we believe about the end times? I've been sort of diving in, and many of you have helped me, actually. Lots of you have sent me materials or recommended videos or teachers, or, and it's like more assignments than I can possibly complete. But thank you for all the things you have sent. And you know what I've learned out of all that? That you guys have many different views of the old, the old t- end times. <laughs> and that's, a, that's okay. Do you know that's true in the whole collective body of Christ? There's lots of different views. But there's lots that we have in common. Uh, let me just, let me talk about these things real quickly. Because I'm not, this is not an extensive overview. I don't want us to get so dug into the details of this that we miss the most important thing is that we long for the appearing of Christ. So there's disagreement within Christians over the details of future events. Um, so one would be what Revelation 20 is, talks about Christ reigning for a thousand years, a special thousand years it seems to be, and, and people have called that the millennium because that's a thousand years. And so are we living in that now? Is it something that's already passed? Is this something that 
has to happen before Jesus comes, or does it happen after Jesus comes and is coming in the future? Those are things that people disagree, with, disagree about or have questions about or are uncertain about. Here's another one. The Bible talks about a time of great trouble or a, a time of tribulation. That's a really old-fashioned word, right? But the, uh, talk about tribulation. So will, will believers in Jesus uh, go through the tribulation? Will they be rescued before the, the tribulation comes? Those are areas of, of disagreement. When will Jesus come back? Before that? In the middle of that? After that? Those are disagreements or things that we're still, Christians are trying to figure out. Um, the question of the salvation of the Jewish people. Like what's, what's the relationship between Jewish people that are followers of Jesus and the church? Are we all sort of in the same, like at one point it seemed like the Bible, the Old Testament talks about God working through the people of Israel. And then in the New Testament, God's working through the church. And does that mean that the church has replaced Israel? Or is the church just a greater fulfillment of Israel? Or are there still two tracks running where there's something special happening for Israel and some special thing for the church? Those are questions that we have, especially right now when things are happening in Israel, right? Some of those things come out and we, we, we wonder about those different things. Now, these are just, these are all kinds of, I'm not going to get into all of them, but these are different things that people sort of wrestle with when they wrestle with different scriptures in the Bible. But I want to talk more about the things that all, of peop- all Christian views have in common, okay? So I'm not going to talk about all the differences because that could be a million conversations. But I want to talk about the things they have in common. So all the Christian viewpoints that I'm aware of believe that there'll be a sudden, personal, visible, bodily return of Jesus. So it'll happen suddenly. Several scriptures talk about, it's like a thief comes in the night. Jesus used that language. Paul uses that language again. So it's like, it's like, it's a shock. He's suddenly there. And that he comes personally. He's visible. We will see him. And he's embodied. So he doesn't come, he's not a, he's not a ray of light. He's not some other you know, thing. He's actually in physical, we'll see a physical form. So that's, all views have that in common. And the, not, the second one is, we should eagerly long for his return. All views have that in common. We should long for it. We should love it. We should be eager for it. Third one is, we do not know when he will return. We don't know. So, we don't know the day or the hour, says Jesus, right? So we don't know. Now, there are things called the signs of the times or the signs of the end. Jesus said there are signs, and there's, a, there's several of them. Um, but we, will, we don't know when he'll return. Um, the results of Christ, here's the, the fourth one. Um, the result of Christ's return, everyone believes that there's a judgment, Okay? which will include judgment for unbelievers, reward for believers, and that believers will live with Christ in a new heaven and a new earth for all of eternity. So these are the things that all the views that are out there have in common. 
One of the ones that I've been thinking about lately is the whole question of, could Jesus come back at any time? Could he come back at any moment? So there's two views that I think are uh, popular. Okay? Here's the one view. Yes. Okay. Okay. So in this view, Jesus could come back before I get to say my next sentence. Okay, the other view. The other view is that there are things that need to happen before Jesus comes back. Right? And so... You say, oh, well, if, if you believe that second view, then there's really no urgency to live for Christ because you'd have a ton of warning that he's coming back because all these things would have to happen historically before he came. But I don't think that that's true, actually, about the second view because um, even people who, again, people hold both of these views, and I'm sure people hold both these views within this church, is that Christ's repeated uh, so when he talks about the end times, he talks about being watchful and waiting and ready and, and not to be caught unaware. Or, or don't think that the master is just delaying and delaying and delaying. Or some of the parables he tells about, especially about the idea of delay. He said, so a master goes to a far off country and he's gone for a long time and then he doesn't come back. And so then the servants say, the master's not coming back, he's delayed. And then they just do wicked things. And so the, the teaching of Jesus is to be in a place of readiness for him to return. And uh, I was reading one author, and, and they were saying, and they actually believe that there would have to be a few things happen before Jesus returns. But they said that there's, there's no way that we can know that that's going to be a span of five years or more. In fact, Jesus could supernaturally cause these events to happen in rapid-fire succession. So, so even if they had to happen before he returned, they could happen so quickly. There never should be a point in our lives where we think, oh, I've, I've, I've got time. I don't need to live for Christ right now. That is the kind of sleepiness in our faith that will leave us unprepared for that moment when he arrives. So, could Christ come back at any time? Some say yes, and some say, well, there's a few things that should have to happen first. But even if there are, they could all happen quickly. Let me give you some of the signs that precede Christ's return uh, that, that have been given. So the preaching of the gospel to all nations. The great tribulation is for some. Some are, it depends on your view on that. False prophets working signs and wonders to deceive. Signs in the heavens. So things happening cosmically. The coming of the man of sin and the rebellion. Sometimes called the Antichrist. And the salvation of Israel. So I was reading a guy named Wayne, Wayne Grudem. He had a recommended view. This is his view. He says... Um, he says, I don't think all the things that have been prophesied have come to pass yet. But it's possible they could have. I thought, well, that's like having your cake and eat it. So, I think that, you know, I was thinking about 
how far to go into this, and I didn't want to go into it very far in this series, and maybe there'll be other, there will be other times where we can do a series where we go a lot much deeper into it. But I was just thinking about how, um, we, how we disagree at Hillcrest. It's been fun. Like the last few years, I've just loved pointing out how we disagree. You think, why would you do that? That just makes... No, I think it has an ability to cause greater unity. When you know that you don't vote the same, you don't shop at the same places, you don't have the same views on so many things, and yet Christ has made us family. That's a beautiful and powerful reality. And only Christ making us family could keep strong unity within the church when the most trying times come along. I'll probably say this for the next 10 years, but you actually did really good during COVID as a church. I've said that to other pastors. I've said that to other people. Some people have come along and say, man, I heard churches went haywire during COVID. I said, well, Hillcrest didn't go haywire. They actually walked in a healthy measure of grace for each other without agreeing. So that's not us. That's obviously Jesus' work. I love that whenever we have a membership class, I get to hear the elders say this. They have this thing that they always say. They say like, so we have a statement of faith. So they, the elders have curated a list of things that they believe are essentials for our church for belief. Really valuable. If you just go to our website, you can just read about it there. And you can read those statements. And then they have a statement about statements, which seems like, is that necessary? It's, it's absolutely necessary. This is a statement about statements. In essential things, like the statement of faith, things that we really think are essential, things like Jesus is the, is the design, divine son of God. He's the savior of the world. He's the only sacrifice for sins. You know, that kind of stuff. That's essential stuff. In essential things, we have unity. Right? If someone gets up and they say, I want to teach on Sunday morning, and then they get up here and say, you know, Jesus is not really the divine son of God. We'll have a big hook, and we'll pull them right off. Because we're not, we have unity in those things. Those things are essentials. But then there's sort of a second category, and that's non-essential things. My dad used to phone me. My dad sort of, I don't know what was going on in his mind or in his heart or whatever it is, but he would phone me uh, with the, the same conversation repetitively. And I don't know if anyone's had that experience with aging parents, but he would phone me. And this is the conversation. Steve, I'm just phoning today to find out uh, what your church's stance is on millennialism, which is a view of the end times. And I say, Dad, I don't think churches, most churches I know don't, aren't like picking one viewpoint of the end times and making that the hard and fast rule that everyone has to believe in the church. But then he phoned me two weeks later and we'd have the same conversation. So I don't know what was happening. But anyhow, we don't have a statement that tells exactly what Hillcrest has chosen as the one and only view about the end times. We believe it's not one of the essentials that's in our, our, our statement of faith. Studying the end times is important. Learning as much as we can about the coming of Christ is important, but it's not. It's a non-essential for us. It's not essential that you believe the exact same on this topic. 
That's what we're saying. So in non-essentials, our statement is we have diversity. In essential things, we have unity. In non-essentials, we have diversity. So that's an area where we can have conversations. I've had many conversations with many of you in the last couple of weeks where you said, hey, this is how I see the end times working out. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. And we've had great conversations. And there's been no threat in that. Even if I see it slightly different or, or somebody else sees it quite different because we are united around who Jesus is and, and who he's made us as family. So in non-essentials, we have diversity. And here's the last statement we have. In everything, we have charity. In everything. So you might, you know, some might come along, and even if someone came along and said, no, I just don't think Jesus is the Son of God, I would show them charity. Now, that's an essential for me. That's an essential for our church. But not a reason not to be loving or kind. So here's the last thing I'm just going to share with you as I I wind up here this morning. I'm going to have to leave a few things for next week here. I always want to bring us back to the, the central question, and that is, do you love the Lord's appearing? And is he working out a greater love for your appearing? Now, how does that happen? I mean, how did that young kid in rocks, or not, it's not called rocks anymore, Hillcrest Kids. I've been here long enough, I know what it used to be called. How did that young kid long internally for Jesus to come and remake the world? Well, first someone had to teach. They had to be aware that that's what the scripture says Jesus is going to do. And probably more than just give the facts, they probably also had to hear in someone else, probably an adult, that they longed for the coming of Christ. So maybe they heard it from their parents. Maybe they heard it from Pastor Laura. Maybe they heard it from someone who works um, to serve in the children's ministry. Maybe they heard it at Bible camp. But somewhere, someone taught the truth of the word so that they could hear it and love it. So first, it's, it's engaging what the truth is. What does the Bible say? What does it say about his, his second coming? And then that seed that's planted in our heart could germinate. It could grow. Like when I, I was, again, just like for me, when I was reading about that, that, uh, that line about shining like the sun, I never thought about it in, con- in connection to the second coming. I've never saw, it's sort of, it's like one of those lines I've glossed over for years. And then I saw it and I thought about people I know shining, being the most glorified version that they, of themselves, and that that is God's plan for them and for me. And that someday the, the people who I hang out with, who we stumble in this life and we've got our faults and there's ways in which we, you know, we're obviously not perfect, he's going to do a work of perfection in us. 
And it made me long for that. It made me long for God to do the work in me that he could, like he's doing a work in me right now. In fact, our knowledge of knowing that he wants to do that work in the future in us should motivate us now that he's going to purify us, that he's going to transform us, should get us in the mode right now to say, well, purify me and transform me now too. Do a change work in my heart right now. I want my life in the present to line up with my life in the future. And if that's what you're going to do in me then, then I want to, I want to start experiencing the future now as much as I can. So it starts with the Word of God. It starts with you understanding a concept of what He's going to do, how He's going to remake you and remake the world, how He's going to allow you to see the display of His glory that you have not yet seen. Now we see through a glass darkly. Can you imagine what, the, and then we'll see face to face. You, you imagine like that? You, know, you ever tried to see through some grainy film or some, some, something that you can barely see through? And you're trying to make out an image, and you're just like, or you're in the dark, and you're you're trying to read something at a distance, or you're trying, and you just don't have any light. And then suddenly the light goes on; it's like so clear. It's it's like there's going to be a transformative difference in how we experience Jesus. You know how we love Him. You know how we sing to Him and we worship Him, and it's there's something powerful and sweet and amazing in that now. But then, but then, like I think about the, those times in worship when I'm so caught up in worship, I feel so full, I feel so, I feel so, um, there's nothing else in the world that matters more than just me and Jesus and what he has done for me and who he is for me. And it's just like the words of the song, which are another version of Truth being implanted as a seed in me are just resonating and resonating and resonating. That is small compared to what you will experience. When your spirit is soaring like it's never soared before in this life, it's small compared to what you experience there. When Paul prayed for people that they'd be filled with all the fullness of God. He was praying for something that you can experience now, but not even close to what you can experience then. So do you love the Lord's appearing? In the, in the very first passage, in 2 Timothy 4, <clears throat> Paul tells the story of, or Paul says, that he's got a crown laid up for everybody who loves his appearing. So basically, he, it's all, this is what he's got coming for us. And then he tells this sad little tale in one line about he, how he had a friend named Demas. And Demas used to be a worker with him spreading the gospel, but he's abandoned Paul now, and he's abandoned the gospel, and he's abandoned those things because he loved this world. Other translation says he loved this age. He took his eyes off the glory that was yet to come, 
the appearing of Christ and all that would come with that. And now he just was looking at the life around him and decided to live for myself. And I think that kind of deception can come to all of us. Because it really is about our desires and our affections and our loves. Do we love what he has in store for us? Or do we love the things of this world more? It doesn't even have to be loving evil things. But somehow, sometimes our hearts just don't even measure right. We love good things, but miss loving great things. We love good things, but we miss loving glorious things. And God wants to capture our imaginations. He wants to capture our affections. He wants us to be wholehearted towards him in ways that only he can make come true in our lives. And that's what he has for you and he has for me. Would you stand? And let's pray. Lord, I pray for us that you'd give us give us seeds of truth about your coming even that would would find good soil in our hearts. I thank you for the joys of this life. I thank you for the goodness of the creation of this world and even the goodness of how you created us. But we, we know that sin has had its way in this world. We know there is brokenness. We know there's been uh, a taint on so many things in how we experience them. And yet you have something way better in store. So, Lord, we, we want to be fully engaged, looking and longing for your second coming. We know. We know it's not, it's not an abandonment of this world. It's not a forgetting of what we're supposed to do. You've given us real-world responsibilities here. And part of longing for your recovery or your coming is, is taking responsibility for what's here and what you've asked us to do. So when you come, we want to be found at work for you, serving you, uh, walking out what you've given us to do well. But Lord, I pray you never, help us not to uh, lose sight of the prize, of lose sight of what, you're, of what we're striving towards and lose sight of what you have in store for us. I pray that we would draw from that world to come values into this world that we're walking in now. Even as we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we're in heaven with you, we'll obey you perfectly. We'll walk with you effortlessly. Everything in us that holds us back or tempts us to run after other things will be removed that But right now we struggle and we groan and we we fight other loves. 
Help us to recognize them for what they are. When they take that place before you, they become idols in our lives, and we can't let anything that's bad become an idol, and we can't let anything that's good become an idol. We have to have you first and foremost. So, Lord, help us to be wholehearted in our following of you. And just show us, again, the greatness of your coming, the promise that it is, and all that you have in store for us. Lord, I pray especially for people who they're, they're already looking at their Christmas calendar and there's no room left in it. I pray you'd give them a moment, a, a come apart with you moment in this Christmas season. I think about those Guatemalan um, actors being Mary and Joseph going door to door. Is there room? No. Is there room? No. Is there room? Yes. Lord, give us, give us hearts with room for you. We ask that in your name. Amen. All right, let's worship him.